This week on the podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Brody Sharp. Brody is a PT or physiotherapist who lives and works down in Australia, and he operates the Run Smarter Clinic. Unlike many PTs who work with the occasional runner here and there, Brody dedicates every day to helping runners stay out there on the road or on the trails doing what we love. He also hosts the Run Smarter podcast and just wrote a book, also called Run Smarter. For those who don't know, my dad was a PT for 40 years, and I really appreciate what the profession can do for athletes, and I really enjoyed getting a little nerdy on this one. I will say it was a little weird to interview Brody. I've listened to well over half the episodes of his podcast in the hundreds, and I've learned so much from him. It was strange to be on the other end, and I truly appreciate his time. I've listened to at least a hundred hours worth of helpful content from Brody, and even though he was busy, he took the time to chat with me about running and injuries and prevention, and I really appreciate it. If you enjoy the conversation, you should definitely check out his stuff and consider buying his book. The audiobook should be coming out very soon at the time of this recording, and I can tell you the content is definitely worthwhile. Around an hour in, there is a noise that persists for a little bit, it is related to my microphone. I'm 99% sure I figured it out. Sorry, please bear with it. It annoys me too, but the information is worthwhile, and I'm pretty sure it won't happen again in the future. Anyway, let's get to the podcast. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This week on the podcast, I have someone I've followed for quite a while now, Brody Sharp. He is a physio from Australia, and he is runs the Run Smarter podcast, and he recently released a book. I have learned a lot from him. He's also appeared on David Terrio's podcast to have on here before and we're just gonna chat about running y'all know my dad was a pt for like 40 years so i really appreciate that profession and we're just gonna kind of figure out some of the stuff from the physio pt perspective that i can't really deliver well on on my end and mm-hmm. just heads up for anybody we're gonna definitely interchangeably use the term physiotherapist and pt just because of the cultural gap all right brody how are you doing today I'm doing well. Well, thanks for having me on. Man, happy to have you here. So question I tend to ask most people is like, how did you get into running? I often ask this to ultra runners because it's a ridiculous sport, but running in general is just hard. So like, how do you, how did you get into this? I came into running a bit later. It was like my early to mid twenties and I was actually grew up with a history of basketball. I played basketball, um, and got pretty competitive, pretty professional. And then um, once that ended, my, I actually went traveling, went traveling to North America for six months and then came back, was a little bit sluggish, probably in the most unfit state of my life. And sure. the, then I, upon my return, my sister was training for a half marathon and asked if I want to train with her because she was the type that needed the accountability and would kind of be fun to do together. And so I agreed and thought it'd be a good time for me to start getting fit again. And so I did and trained for that half marathon and just loved it. And at that stage I was, 
uh, working as a full-time physiotherapist and just a generic one, just treating anyone who walked in the door and just grew the love for running. And then uh, alongside that grew the passion for treating runners and learning more about running and uh, everything that went along with it. And then my career just took a pretty steep um, change in direction from there. Yeah, I feel that kind of honestly similar on my end. Never really intended to be here and found myself here in the past couple of years. So I, I get that. If you were in basketball, um, I started with Ultimate Frisbee. Actually, it was a big thing for me. That's a lot of the same like short direction changes. I actually used to watch like game tape of Phil Jackson's coaching to figure out how to like run Frisbee Ooh. plays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like it's a similar sport. What have you found that any like carryover, any benefit, any like weird transfer from such a like short direction changey sprint sport? Um, like basketball, when you switch to something like distance running, it's, I guess the, the cardio fitness is there. Um, sure. It is slightly different. Um, but I think growing up, like I've had a ton of running related injuries, but I have never had a calf or Achilles injury. That's and good. that's, I think that was like the short sprinty, jumpy takeoff sort of change directions. My calves were very, very strong. I was, um, growing up playing basketball, I was used to like, I guess my defense was probably the the biggest kind of element that um, my coaches and that sort of thing focused on one of my Same. strong suits. Um, so side shuffling and a lot of glute strength sort of carried over into running, never had a glute issue or hip issue in the, in the past um, and never had a calf or Achilles issue. So I think those sort of traits helped build resiliency for the crossover and the transfer into long distance running, but the stuff that required the long distance, um, you know, sort of fell apart. So there were some weak links trying to make that transfer, but also some strong links alongside that as well. Sure. It's interesting. You say that like, I struggle with like, like my calves were one of the slowest things to transition Hmm. to running, despite the fact that I played a jumping sport for so long, like they just Mm. hated it. And, um, any an insight on like why something like that might be? Um, it might be like some components of it might be genetic makeup. Who knows? I've always been like a fast twitch, <laughs> like jumping sure. really high type of person. Sure. Um, some people are more slow twitch and just they, they really thrive on the endurance stuff, but get them to do a hundred meter sprint or try and do a, a box jump like on a really high box and like they struggle with that explosive ability. Um, so I've always been that kind of explosive sort of characteristics and who knows, maybe that's from training in basketball or enjoying the explosive stuff, or maybe I had a little bit of a genetic kind of components that sort of made up that, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, no, I get that. Makes sense. Um, it's a, it's a hard thing when you like switch a bunch of sports, but I agree that there's like a lot of injury prevention crossover and that seems to, to track with mine as well. Uh, one thing I like want to pick your brain on before we get into like book stuff um shoes and i hear so much about shoes and all my athletes ask me about shoes (laughs) like should i be transitioning to minimalist or ultras or zero drop or what have you and like for me i'm barefoot almost all the time i'm barefoot right now when i run due to the achilles stuff um i wear some like cushy solomons and is there like a perfect shoe for everybody or should anybody like be directing a certain direction or what are we looking for here? I saw your recent like post about the minimalist. 
study. I just love to hear your insight on all that. Yeah. And I'm just about to release a YouTube video uh, this weekend about when to buy new shoes as well. And awesome. uh, like what sort of guidelines you can have about buying shoes because there's so much misinformation. A lot of it is my interpretation of the evidence and there's so much, so much stuff you see, you read one paper that has a certain narrative. You read another paper that has another narrative. It's sure. It's really hard to come up with some blanket statements and general guidelines, but um, I am very cynical when evidence puts out or, or like when something, a shoe is advertised that it, it promises to do these things like reduce risk of injury or increase performance. And um, that it might be the case, but very cynical in the fact that these shoes are being put out there and advertised for you to buy those shoes. And so yeah. the the running shoe companies, they can, they're not under the same scrutiny that say a medical grade device needs to be so they can, you know, do these <laughs> flimsy sort of studies and overpromise, under deliver on, you know, how, what the effect should be on the body, reduce ground sure. reaction force or reduce your risk of injury or, you know, overcome plantar fasciitis and these sort of things. And there's no one holding them accountable. So I'm always a bit cynical. And I guess for someone who's wanting a little bit of guidance around shoes, if they want to increase their running performance, um, they don't need to hone in on a certain type of shoe, but we do know that lighter shoes help performance. We do sure. know that even if you reduce your, uh, the weight of your shoes by a hundred grams that every hundred grams increases your running efficiency by 1%, which can be quite profound, especially if you're, you know, um, in the elites or sub elite sort of genre that can be huge. It can be a huge Absolutely. difference, but to usually when shoes become lighter, the, the, the sacrifice is usually it, it becomes more minimalist. It like lacks support. It lacks that sort of rigidity and the body has to start making up those particular, the lacking of that shoe. And so we want to make sure that you're strong enough to handle those. There are exceptions to the rule. There are like tech foam technologies that are now coming out with, you know, super dense, thick shoes that are super, super light. And that's mm. just, you know, as things develop, um, there will be exceptions to that rule. But generally speaking, the lighter the shoe, the more flimsy and less supportive it is. And we need to make sure that if that's your goal, if your goal is to have a, a lighter shoe and your goal is to head more down towards the minimalist genre, because that's you know what you enjoy or what you want to give a try, you do need to be very careful about how you transition to those minimalist shoes because the demands that it puts on your body uh, usually below the knee. So your calf, Achilles, plantar fascia, the bones of your feet and ankle, um, all these sorts of things will have to work extremely hard. And you want to make sure that's not an abrupt change. Because if it is an abrupt change, then that's when injuries occur. Sure. And that makes a ton of sense. And I know the study you mentioned said like nobody followed the guidelines to actually make the transition, which yeah, sounds so this, this particular like so study, expected, right? But still, it, Jesus, yeah. And it, and it sums up what runners do. Um, for those who aren't familiar, <laughs> I, I posted a research study that uh, looked at some runners. They, they looked at 14 runners, gave, they were all used to running in traditional shoes, which I'm not too sure what traditional was. I'm assuming it's going to be like your standard running shoe, like a 10 mil drop, like pretty good support and um structure and then they 
handed them barefoot running shoes. So like a huge shift in properties and they gave them the shoes. They gave them some pamphlets and information about how to transition to those shoes and followed them up. And turns out that during the follow-up period, 12 out of the 14 runners ended up with an injury. And most of those injuries are around the the calf Achilles foot sort of um, injuries. And, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. You've got people trying to transition way too abruptly. And then they interviewed them afterwards and none of them followed all the guidelines that were recommended. So it does, <laughs> if it's, it's, it, it does happen in the real world. I can see people reading about the benefits of barefoot shoes and saying, fantastic, let me give it a go. And then just transitioning too quickly. It's um, it's something that I've seen in the real world. And uh, yeah, the, the likelihood for injury, like 12 out of the 14 people there just goes to show that that abrupt change is, is really dangerous. Yeah. I was just laughing. Cause like I did that 12 years ago. <laughs> so like, right. Yeah. Like I, I heard, this was important and I did the thing and I didn't get that injured, but definitely got some like tweaks, especially with the like seemingly genetic issues with my calf. It just seems so <laughs> normal, right? Like it's just absurd. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me on that front. Like I had a friend ask me and I've always been kind of curious, is there anything to different surfaces or different hardnesses or any of that being like asphalt versus concrete versus trails versus grass being different on different muscles are more prone to injury than another? It's a good question. Um, I haven't really come across definitive research to show those certain things. Um, it can be nice for some people. It can be nice for some injuries. Uh, if you if you have plantar fasciitis, sometimes grass tends to favor just as you're getting back into running, you can start sure. on grass for a bit and then transition Um, trails can be nice for someone with say ITB syndrome because your foot placement is less consistent. Like ITB syndrome is more of a repetitive injury, which means the same motion of your leg over and over and over again can irritate. So we don't want that same repetitive, the exact sort of movement. And so trails, you're going around, um, corners, you're going around like roots and trees and up and down and sort of your foot placement varies. So that can be kind of helpful. Um, For the most part, we do want the ground to be firm Mm. for the most part, because firm equals efficiency. And we want to be as efficient as possible. If anyone's tried running on sand, soft sand, you just go nowhere and you're putting in so much effort. And that's just because you lose so much of that momentum from the ground moving underneath you. And so that, that kind of sucks. And yeah, you know, I've, I've done in my teens, you know, playing basketball and during the off season on the beach, I tried doing soft sand running and my cars were just, they had doms for three days afterwards. And <laughs> it was just yeah. because they just work so much harder and can be dangerous and yeah. can be really inefficient. So unless your goal is to run on the sand, if you've got a sand race or a, a sand marathon, which do exist, if that's yeah. your goal, then you'll have to implement it in there. But for most of us who want to be efficient and reduce your risk of injury, I'd say probably keep away from soft sand and yeah, th- those sort of terrains can, can be a bit problematic. So if we're looking at, I mean, obviously these like super soft stuff makes sense. And I'm laughing again. Cause like that makes, I, I struggled with that playing Frisbee. There's always like a, a beach tournament somewhere and it's just a different world. And if you're looking at, 
the opposite end of the spectrum, though, like you'll hear some people say, like, try to avoid running on concrete because it's really hard and it messes with your joints. Is that do you think there's anything to that or is that more of a technique issue? Like, are we just all overstriding? Yeah, uh, that that's where my mind goes straight away. It, it goes to, OK, we do want to be efficient. So we do want a firm uh, surface to to, you know, convert your your power into momentum. We want to be as efficient as possible. Uh, but people shy while they read and they shy away from high ground reaction forces. And while that is the case, if you're not used to high ground reaction forces, once you're used to it, then you should be okay. But there are some running traits that have unwanted forces on the body. And so, like you said, that overstride is one of the classic signs that we want to remove pretty much for most people if it if it's displayed. Rarely sure. do I see someone... And they have an overstride pattern. Most experienced runners who have the particular coordinations and sort of used to their um, used to the running mechanics, they they very rarely have an overstride pattern. But yeah. if someone does display an overstride pattern, you, it's hard to see a scenario where that would be useful. You know, this is where someone hits the ground yeah. in front of their center of gravity too far forward that actually creates more of a breaking force, and that breaking force is just unwanted. Um, I say it in the book, it's kind of like driving on the freeway with the handbrake on and trying to move forward, but you've got your handbrake on in your car. It's it's that same sort of mechanics. Why would you have that? You want everything to be as efficient as possible, helping you move forward. And sure. it does create a bit of a, uh, a breaking force, but that's not to say, some people say, well, then we need to remove all heel striking and we need to forefoot strike. That's yeah. where some people might lead to, but not the case because you can still contact with your heel. You just need to remove the overstride. You just need to contact with the heel closer to underneath the body. It doesn't need to be exactly underneath the body. It's it's kind of hard or sometimes impossible to contact directly underneath the body. Otherwise, you just sure. fall flat on your face. But <laughs> the um, yeah, th those sort of traits, the overstride um, does need to be corrected and you usually do that just by increasing your cadence. Yeah. The amount of steps you take per minute usually corrects that pretty much straight away. That makes sense. It's I mean, it helped me a lot trying to learn to run in the past a little bit, like increasing cadence has been, I don't know, unexpectedly helpful. Like I tried for mm -hmm. a while and I couldn't make it work um, just cause I was so new and I tried again and it was like just plateau breaking. What so, was your cadence beforehand? Uh, so it was 160-ish. It, yeah. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. But like whenever I tried to speed up, I couldn't like quite control anything and like felt, felt awkward. And then once I developed more of a cardio engine to work with that, and I tried again to bump it up to 175, 170, 175, it just feels so good now. <laughs> it's just nice. immediately got faster. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, some of that actually came down to mechanics where like driving backwards with glute max, because I realized from all the like lateral motion in the past, I was much like disproportionately stronger in my glute med than mm. I probably should be. And so like finding that there and then like that hip extension as well. And that kind of brings me to another question, like stretching <laughs> um, is stretching a thing that you feel to be like ever useful um, really to help runners like avoid injury. 
Yeah, I, I have done podcast episodes in the past, which yeah. kind of highlights realistic expectations about stretching. Um, and I maybe have been a bit too harsh in the past, but the the one thing that I I have to don't yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing that I don't like seeing is runners that are convinced that they get injured because they don't stretch enough. That particular scenario um, is problematic for them because yeah. if you if you are convinced that you're getting injured because you don't stretch enough and you don't like stretching, then you're not going to start stretching and you're going to continue getting injured and believing that particular sure. narrative. But we know that stretching and flexibility doesn't really play a, a role in running related injuries or overuse injuries, which is makes up the vast majority of running related injuries. And if you have that belief, you're not directing your attention to things that might be contributing to your running. So it might be your training loads, your training philosophy, your training intensity distribution, like all of these things, your recovery, all of these aspects that have real strong correlations to overuse injuries sure. may be completely ignored on your on your part because you believe that stretching is um, you know, relating to this particular uh, likelihood of injury. And so that's why I've been a bit critical with stretching in the past, but I do like trying to come from the other side of things. I do think that it has some good benefits for some. Sure. There are some people, um, usually, you know, your master's runners, usually a little bit older that their, their joints are quite stiff and mm. can sort of affect their mobility and the mobility is so limited that it affects their running mechanics. So we're looking at like your big toe extension. We're looking mm -hmm. at your hip being able to extend 15 degrees. We're looking at your, mm. your ankle being able to bend um, or dorsiflex, you know, just a little bit during that mid stance, like these sorts of things. Runners don't need to be that mobile, which is why yeah. there's only a very small percentage of people that require mobility work in their joints before they actually start running. So for those very small groups of people, they can benefit from some mobility work before they actually start running. But on the other side, there are the runners who find the mental benefits of stretching to really unwind, calm themselves down and doesn't really have much physical benefits, but has a lot of mental benefit. And we know that like decreasing the amount of stress and just unwinding from the day does have good recovery and can help a runner. But those who don't like stretching and they, they just feel like they need to do it because they believe it helps, you know, reduce their risk of injury. They probably don't need to, it's not that high of a priority. And so they could probably benefit from enhancing their recovery. Otherwise like nutrition and sleep and reduce their risk of injury. Otherwise like, you know, they're training dosages and their training progressions and strength training and those sorts of things. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. So you did mention a couple things that I've kind of, I've kind of found with the amount of people I've trained with where flexibility might actually make a difference and something like ankle dorsiflexion, like, should we be where would we know like when we have an issue, I guess. So if we're looking at something like ankle dorsiflexion or like hip extension backwards or like toe movement, um, should you be able to move your knee past your toes? Like what are simple tests we can do to kind of figure out what might be an issue here? 
there's some tests that I do, which I don't really see. I don't think it's that evidence-based. I haven't really come across anything that says you need this sure. amount of range of movement to be a runner. Sure. Sometimes hip extension. Same. So bringing the knee behind you, um, a runner might need 10 to 15 degrees of range of movement there. Cool. So I just get people in a lunge position where their knee is on the ground. So they're not holding with tension and they're mm. just relatively relaxed and they just lunge forward and see how much extension they can get. Mm. And if that's okay, then we know that their passive range of movement is fine. Then we can maybe have a look at their running and see on a treadmill, can they achieve that 10, 15 degrees of extension? If they can do that, then, you know, maybe hip mobility stuff isn't that important for them. And sure. for the ankle, we can do what I call a knee to wall mobility test. So you just have just um, approach a wall. So you're facing the wall, have your toes up against the, the wall and then just lunge forward to see if the knee can touch the wall. If it can do that, then you move your foot slightly further back from the wall and do that same lunge forward again and see how far away your foot can eventually get from the wall with your heel staying on the ground that your knee can touch the wall. And then that sort of works out your limited range and mobility for for that. And generically speaking, if someone is getting two to three inches away from the wall or like, you know, six centimeters or something, um, I'd say that's pretty sufficient to be able like achieve that mobility for the running action. And then it's not really that required. And yeah, they don't really need to work that much on mobility or calf stretching or Achilles or, you know, plantar fascia, that sort of stuff. And the same thing could be said for the big toe. Just have a look, see how much the big toe can extend just passively. And if that's okay, then like I said, you might be within that majority of runners that don't necessarily need to require too much mobility work to improve their running. Yeah. And it's funny, like anybody who's been coached by me, I do the exact same wall test and look for very similar things. Cause I don't know, I found that forever ago and I, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence to it, but it seems to track to me. Like if you can get your knee three inches past your toe, you seem fine. So mm. cool. Yeah. And there are some things that surprise me as well. Like um, on my podcast, I interviewed Eric Hegedus who did a um, an overhead squat for collegiate mm. athletes and sure. found that those who really struggle to May have that mobility to perform that task. They had a look at a double leg overhead squat and a single leg overhead squat. So you're, you're doing those squat tasks, but your arms are and fingertips are pointing towards the ceiling. Those who ranked poorly in terms of their quality of movement, not how many they could do, but the quality of them being able to do that task. If they ranked poorly on that scale, then they were more likely to get injured later Um uh, as they go through their, their training season and not necessarily um, it's an interesting finding. And so maybe there's some quality, some mobility issues there or some strength issues there. And uh, Eric Hegedus was more along the lines of this has a look at your hip mobility, but also your hip strength has sure. a look at your ankle mobility, but also your, your knee control and those sorts of things. So maybe there's a few things that correlate there. Yeah, and I kind of found the same. I mean, I mostly work with trail runners, right? So I don't actually know. I find it fascinating that I had the same carryover to like track and road. Because if mm. we aren't able to get that like drive uphill with like hamstring and glute, then tend to cause problems, which would be pretty indicate indicative if you're like actually getting to parallel or like slightly below in that squat. 
And same with like the stability, like that seems to be like the single leg squat almost seems more valuable to me than the dual squat. Cause it just shows like if your knee is like caves valgus, <laughs> like that seems yeah. like you're going to end up with problems. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess for, for trail runners, like you, you will be moving your body differently. You will be going through slightly different ranges of movement. Um, you know, ankle stability is probably a little bit more important for trail runners. The ability for the hips, like as soon as you thud yourself downhill, gravity is just taking more of an effect and you have to have a lot, your hips need to be a lot stronger to stabilize, sure. um, to make sure that the, you're not getting this um, opposite hip drop or, you know, you're not losing your posture when you're running down, you need to be extremely strong to fight that gravity as you're thudding your way downhill. So it could be, um, advice can be slightly changed for trail runners as well. Cool. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So slight diversion. Um, how would you know, or like, how would someone know and they might need to see someone like a PT or a doctor? Like, and this is partially speaking to a U.S. audience where some people can barely afford their insurance, which means like it is a big decision to go see someone like this. And I mean, if you can, great. But if not, like, where is that dividing line? Should you be going preventatively? Like when, when is your injury potentially bad enough to maybe go see someone? Yeah. Uh, I guess this is my opinion, interpretation yeah, and being, being a physio. Uh, I have, mentioned this in my book and actually have a bit of a, a flow chart in there of like how your symptoms are behaving, how long symptoms are lasting for and whether you should get it assessed awesome. or not. I haven't gotten and, that far. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is me just trying to struggle with, okay, what do I think? When do I think that should, should be an issue and not be an issue? Because it's not as simple as every time you get pain, go get it checked out because, you know, you're just going to be at seeing a PT for, you know, 10 months out of the year. Yeah. Um, but we do, I like to follow certain pain guidelines and like characteristics of an injury to see how it goes. And generically speaking, if you have an injury that follows certain pain guidelines, it might still be fall within acceptable um, symptoms. So during a run, we want to make sure that your injury stays less than a four out of 10 on average. Um, and we want to make sure that that returns back to baseline symptoms within 24 hours. So afterwards, we want to make sure that pain doesn't escalate. And by the next day, we want to make sure that there's no further irritation with that running dosage. And so if that's all successful, you can tick all those boxes, then that bout of running has been okay. As well as that, we want to make sure that your injury and your symptoms are improving week by week. That is a key, a key characteristic because people can be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's there. It's, it's noticeable, but it's only like a one or two out of 10, but I've had it for three months. And sure. I would say, you know, if it's mild, maybe you only need a slight tweak in your training and then you're, you're better. But the longer you've had an injury for, usually generically speaking, the harder it is to get rid of. So if someone comes in with a six, six week injury, very easy to someone against a six month injury, which some people do. Some runners easily would run for six months as long as they're still able to run yeah. because their motivation levels are um, not prompting them to seek a medical assessment. And we know that if 
someone's in pain, that's not enough motivation to seek treatment. It's only until that pain becomes severe enough that they can't run that they're booking in the next day and saying, help me, I need to get back to running next week. And so- Yeah, um, I basically had this conversation already today. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the the story of a runner. Yeah, like you should go see a doctor, man, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) We need to to carefully interpret the pain behaviors and making sure that it is getting better week by week because if it's not, then there's something in your training, whether it's too much speed work, too much volume, too many hills that are leading the body to to react and say, okay, we're not getting better. And you need to be really careful of that. And I do have two particular scenarios in my book, which highlights some dangers in terms of long-term trends. Um, That being someone might get better they might perceive that they're getting better, but they're only just retreating further from what is aggravating. So they say, all right, Brody says that my injuries should be getting better week by week. And they are getting better week by week, but you have a look at their weeks and they've removed hill work, then they've removed speed work, and then they've removed volume, then they've you know sure. removed cross-training. They're, they're slowly retreating further and further back to safer waters and they're saying, yeah, but my injury is getting better because I'm improving week by week, but they're just retreating further to safety, which can be a particular, um, you know, false, mm. false belief. And so we need to be really careful of that. Yeah. I mean, that makes that tracks completely, especially with my, I have a very long injury history in, cause I was not, <laughs> I was not responsible in my 20s. Like most of us. Yeah, for yep. sure. Yeah. And especially when you play like a, a cutting sport with and have absolutely no self-care at all yeah 100 mm-hmm. so like right now i'm actually kind of injured i damaged my mcl on the dance floor and ah. i yeah you know dumb <laughs> <laughs> it's fun though <laughs> but like i'm gonna have to take at least a, a week off running and i've been able to stay mobile i've been able to work with my clients like demo exercises i just have to be like very concentrated on it and i guess like I get this concern from other people and it'd just be nice to like hear the same response from someone who knows even more than I do. Like, am I going to lose all my progress? Like, how am I going to like, when am I able to come back? Like all of these concerns that we all have, like, even though I know the answer to these questions, when I woke up 5 a.m. Sunday morning in pain after doing this injury, like there's just panic, right? So like, of course, we have this, yeah, of course. Like, and I, it's where I like, I understand where all my athletes are coming from when they ask me these questions and like, what is the, what is the data? What is the backing? Like where, where do we start to really lose a lot of the work we put in? It is such a huge fear for runners when they're injured. And that's one of the main motivations why they continue to run when they are injured. Cause they're scared of losing fitness and, losing all of the gains they've built. Like they can work for six months, building up, building up, building up. As soon as they're injured, they're like, am I going to lose this six months of progress? Am I going to have to go back to square one? And so they like, hopefully it just comes good. I'm going to continue running and hopefully it just resolves itself. And that's the trick that people get into. And um, especially when someone has a race coming up and I I see all the time because I treat runners online and it's, 
as soon as they have a, a race in mind, I need to be super cautious of what I prescribe to them and making sure their intensity and everything's just really exact because yeah. as soon as you give them a, a 10K run to do that weekend, they do a really easy 10K, but then that race is six weeks away. So they do that 10K slightly faster mm. and they do that 10K the next week slightly faster and then race day approaches and you know they start to get a little niggle and they're like, no, my race is four weeks away. I need to push through this. And you know, it just yeah. brings people undone really quickly because of that that reference point that they want to be at to prepare for that race. And often- just leads them to doing too much too soon. And so I, the, the evidence isn't really clear on how long it takes to lose fitness. There are experts and some papers out there that have rough guidelines, but um, it also, there's a lot of nuance in there because it depends on how active you are while you're not running. Let's have an example right. for someone who is sick. If they're unwell and bedridden for seven days, and they just get up out of bed to to drink and eat and then go back to bed. They're going to lose fitness so much quicker, sometimes sure. as much as five to seven days because they're doing nothing. So they will lose fitness really quickly. But the idea when you're injured, and if you're so injured that you can't run, the next focus point should be, okay, how active can you be so that you maintain a lot of the fitness that you have? Yes. And if you do cycling, if you do swimming, if you do cross-training, elliptical, whatever, cardiovascular alternative that you have that doesn't uh, irritate your symptoms can be extremely helpful to preserve a lot of that strength because you can stop running for six weeks and just keep really active with being creative with all these other alternative uh, cardio options and you won't lose fitness. And so yeah. It, you might feel a little bit wonky coming back to, to running. You might feel a little bit uncoordinated and yeah, maybe your first couple of runs, you might feel like, you know, you're a little bit out of breath, but that returns super quickly. And so generically speaking, time off running, you know, maybe about three weeks is when you start to lose sort of running fitness, but it returns quicker, the more proactive you are in those three weeks. If you have time off, if you go traveling and you're just walking around and um, you know, sedentary lifestyle, maybe you'll start to lose fitness in two to three weeks, but it's really hard to say. It's really hard to have these blanket statements because, you know, you don't know what the athlete's doing in that time off running, but like I said, sure. bedridden, you'll lose it really quickly. You'll lose muscle, you'll lose strength, yeah. but the, the regaining is a lot, um, a lot quicker as well. This is for someone who has that fear of losing fitness. Um, keep in mind that you will lose it but you'll regain it so much quicker than that six months that you put in prior to that. Yep. You'll, you'll build it back up within weeks, not months. And so, um, you know, you can have some reassurance that sometimes some downtime and time off is actually encouraged and would be more beneficial for you in the long run than, you know, just worrying about losing fitness and persevering through an injury. Sure. I mean, I've, the conversation I had today was basically like, you might lose a little bit. We'll gain it back really fast the most guaranteed way to miss your race is to keep going through this. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So on that, like if we are injured, I guess I, this is two partner. So if we are injured, like what's a good way to come back to running? Should we ease back in? Like, if so, how much, like it should be, is there some sort of protocol or should we kind of like go by feel? What's your opinion on that? It is a bit of going by feel and a bit of 
expert opinion. Sure. It, there's a lot of bits of information that we need to know. How long have you had time off? How severe is the injury? How irritable is the injury? Because we're not necessarily looking to be symptom-free before returning to running. It's not that simple. It's finding when you're ready to tolerate small amounts of running that doesn't irritate symptoms and then starting with that and building back up. And so the main data points would be, okay, how strong are you um, at the moment? How fit were you before this injury? What was your overall mileage? What sort of speed were you doing? What were you doing in the gym to, to keep strong? So, you know, someone who's super fit, super strong, and then they get injured for three weeks, their return back is going to be a bit swifter than someone who is a low mileage runner, doesn't do a lot of strength work, and then has three weeks off and has a, an irritable injury. And then their return back needs to be a bit more conservative. So a bit more data. And yes, you do need to, if you're unsure, then take the conservative approach. If you don't have a health professional and you don't have the guidance, really easy to start more conservative than you need to be. That's the safer option. If you have a race coming up and you want to essentially optimize your recovery back. And so that conservative approach isn't an option, probably seek the help of like a running coach or a health professional or someone who's experienced to, to give you a starting point and sort of flirt with flirt closer with the boundary of yeah. your adaptation zone and what overloads that injury, because sure. there might be some tweaks here and there that might optimize that recovery. And it is, it's flirting with that boundary it yeah. is the most optimal thing, but is also the most risky. So you do need to be careful and it is a bit of a, an art as well as a science. Um, but yeah, like I said, if you're unsure, you can always be on the safe side and just be really conservative. hundred percent. And I guess this makes me wonder, are injuries in running inevitable? And I feel like everybody has been injured at some point when it comes to this sport. Um, and I would like to think no, but I also think that it's, and I think you said this in your book, it's like we, there's no upper bound to this, man. Like it, mm. just, it keeps going. So you can keep pushing yourself until you get hurt. And I'm kind of wondering if that means that most of us are going to get there at some point. Yeah. There are the rare exceptions of runners that never get injured. And that is an anomaly that, you shouldn't strive for. I don't think runners should strive for that. Um, the, a lot of times the runners who haven't been injured haven't really pushed themselves. Like that's the 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 goal of running. We like pushing ourselves. Sure. We like, you know, competing in bigger races, harder races, faster times. And that's just the, the motivations of most runners, I would say. If someone is a runner, they love their 5K three times a week, just like doing it slow and that's all they want to do and that's, you know, they don't have any other ambitions. You know, you could probably not risk injury. Like a goal would be to never get injured, I guess. Sure, um, sure. But that's not a lot of runners. Yeah. Um, and those like injury preventions, such a, a hot topic for runners. Runners just want to know all they they can to reduce their risk of injury. Cause like I say, it's such a fear for people, that such sucks. a fear of losing fitness. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. yeah. And if you're injured, that's pain, pain, closely linked to misery. Mm -hmm. You're not running. If you're not exercising and you're in pain, it's just this double whammy of misery. Sure. And 
you know, people just want to do what they can to reduce their risk of injury. And then when they do get injured, they're really hard on themselves. You know, they, they beat themselves up because they look back and they look back on their training and say, yeah, I've done too much clearly. Sure. And I, I put some realistic expectations in the book and I talk about this on my podcast as well. Um, I think the goal to re- like get that injury risk down to zero is unrealistic for most runners who are training for a race, training for a marathon, um, you know, you've got a whole bunch of life sort of stuff, stresses, and, you know, sometimes you have some stress where you decrease your your quality of sleep and that affects your training as well. Like there's so many multifactorial things that we need to consider. Just to, uh, just to clarify, because I know this is a thought in people's head and sorry, but it's going to be like, we are talking also like, any injury as well right like it's not definitely like not like you're guaranteed to get like you know a stress fracture in your femur Mm. right but like the fact that you might get a niggle which is technically an injury is damn near 100 (laughs) percent for sure yeah Yeah. and there there are definitely over the course of your running career yeah yeah you can reduce your risk of injury you definitely can reduce your risk of injury but getting it down to zero i think is a bit unrealistic and my realistic expectations is it's your goal of a of a smart runner to catch that injury early on interpret those symptoms really quickly and be proactive enough to overcome that injury without losing fitness and get back to pain-free running um as swiftly as possible that's definitely achievable if you know mm-hmm. all the right principles if you know what to do um getting injured having this really brief period of injury and getting back without losing fitness is definitely a goal for everyone but that still has injuries attached to it like yeah. you still get niggles here and there it could it could last like three days and yeah. that's fine but <clears throat> these are the expectations if you're looking to push the envelope these are the risks that we all take on when we do push the envelope and train and push our capabilities, because that's essentially what running related injuries are. It's, it's exceeding the capacity of those muscles, tendons, ligaments. And if your training isn't precise or sometimes it's about taking risks. Sometimes if you have a marathon and you do have to, you know, train and push your capabilities, you know, that, that comes with risks. And sometimes that risk is getting a niggle for a week or so. And where injuries become detrimental is when people either aren't educated enough, they misinterpret those symptoms. They, you know, push their training and mismanage that injury for way too long. And then that injury gets worse and worse. And then they have to um, take drastic changes and lose fitness maybe sometimes, or, you know, take time off running. It's, it's only because that injury has been mismanaged for that long that you have to take those drastic actions. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And that's kind of how I feel as well. And especially with a sport like running, like it's not like basketball or Frisbee where you get any sort of this feedback where it's like the ball didn't go in the hoop. So my skill isn't very good. Like a lot mm. of the time with running, the signal that your skill is off is that something feels bad. Mm. Does that makes sense. Yeah. And I do like you alluded to it before. What, what I mentioned in the book is the nature of running as a sport is limitless. Like yeah. we have overuse injuries. The overuse injury is because you've overdone it. You, you've pushed your capabilities too far, too fast, sure. too often. And 
this is a sport that has endless possibilities. You train for a marathon, then you recover. Then what's your next thing? Oh, I want to do three marathons in a year. Then mm. you do that. Okay, what's the next thing? I want to go to an ultra marathon. Okay, what's the next thing there? I want to do uh, an ultra that has, you know, 5,000 feet of elevation. And it's just, it's it's endless. Yeah, and absolutely. it might be further. It might be more often. It might be faster. Whatever your goal is, there's limitless boundaries. You know, it's yeah. um, it's something like no other. And that's why that running related injuries are so common. And yeah. Very few runners have coaches. Very few runners, do, oh well, majority of runners just train to their own whim, just with what mm-hmm. they've researched, and then away they go. A lot of runners train just off feel and say, "I'm feeling good. Let me run two hours today." And it's just, it's just a, a an interesting mixture of all these personality traits and the nature of the sport and the the recreational. Um, popularity just is a perfect recipe for people just overdoing things and getting injured. Absolutely. And some of it's the volume that it requires too. Like I actually heard this stat recently on Peter Atia's podcast and he's nothing if not very precise. And if he, he was saying that the actual rate of injury per hour of sport is way lower in runners but a lot of that has to do with the amount of time you spend doing it. So it's like two or three injuries per thousand hours that we end up doing this or some, some stat like that. That's not the number. But if it were basketball, it's like 15 for that same proportion. But the amount of practice that you spend in basketball is a lot less than we tend to do in running for a host of reasons, right? Mm. But that tends to like crank the overall numbers, but the percentage tends to actually be a little lower. I think there's, um, I can't exactly remember the numbers and I think it does very wildly. I think the, um, mm. the running related injuries, some studies show it's 15 injuries every thousand hours of running. Some sure. say it's like up to 75 injuries yeah. per thousand hours of running. And so like, sure. it depends on the study, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. It's just nuts. Um, so I guess that this is a question I was asked to ask you about like four people. So I'm going to ask you, is running bad for your knees? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting topic um, because runners, the knee is the most common injury, the most common area for, for running related injuries, patellofemoral pain or pain around the kneecap is the most common site of pain for, for a runner. And people have the belief, especially non-runners, you'll hear this quite often that the ground reaction force, the repetitive nature, thousands of times in the run, you know, five times a week over years will just accumulate so much ground reaction force that the cartilage starts to wear away and you eventually get osteoarthritis and therefore, you know, you should reduce your amount of running. They treat it like a, a car part where they say, you know, your, your knees, your joints, your muscles have a certain expiration date. You know, if you put a certain amount of mileage in it, like a car, a car part will have a certain amount of mileage before it needs to be replaced because of wear and tear. They treat the body exactly the same. And the people that have this belief think that, you know, there's a certain amount of mileage in your knees. And if you misuse it and if you overuse it, it's only going to be a certain amount of time before, you know, these arthritic changes or this cartilage damage starts to occur. And then you start getting sore and then you need to eventually get it replaced. We now know that is not the case. We now know it's the complete opposite because ground reaction force actually stimulates cartilage growth. 
And it's important that you maintain a healthy weight. It's important that you maintain cartilage growth. It's important that you remain really strong um, mm. in relation to muscles around the knee that surround the knee. And running is actually good for your knees, provided that you don't mismanage it. There was a really nice study that had a huge systematic review looking at the prevalence of osteoarthritis in your hip and your knee. And they gathered all these studies and the pool ended up being 125,000 runners or 125,000 people. To Seriously? Look at how, That's yeah, massive. To look at, That's so powerful. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> the prevalence of knee and hip osteoarthritis in the general population. And they found that runners, recreational runners, had a prevalence of hip and knee osteoarthritis, um, 3.5% of the population. They looked at the sedentary population with the same baseline characteristics, the same age. Um, they looked at the prevalence of osteoarthritis and found it was 10.5%. So you're three times more likely to get knee and hip OA when you are sedentary compared to when you're a runner. And this sort of supports what I was saying before, the ground reaction force, staying fit, maintaining your weight, being really strong around the knees, protects the knees. It actually preserves cartilage. Um, interestingly, in that study as well, they looked at elite runners. They classified elite runners as those who are either paid to run or those who represented their nation. So really top tier, like the top of the top runners. They had osteoarthritis more than the sedentary population. That came in around 12%. And so this is where... I say we we can't mismanage and overuse our injuries sure. because that can we need to find the right balance between load and recovery. Mm. So the recreational runners are finding that perfect balance between load and recovery. The sure. sedentary population is underloading, sure. but the it seems like the really elites are overloading. So sure. they're on each side of that particular scale, whereas recreational runners are finding that perfect balance in the middle. And that might honestly come back to that like knife edge we were talking about a little bit. If you're constantly pushing that gap for performance, then you're you're taking a higher risk. And you might just end up there. Like I mean, the, we're talking people who are running probably 120 to 150 miles a week, right? Like mm. in their peak, and that just yep. that's a lot. That's a lot to do. It is. Yeah. It's it's uh, it all comes back to I mentioned this. I think I wrote it down about 50 times in my book. It relates to load versus capacity. It's yeah. all about load versus capacity, which yeah. is essentially, oh, it's training versus recovery. Yeah. If you overload or under recover, you're in danger. And so you want to make sure you find that perfect balance. I couldn't agree more. And I'm everybody's heard me say some version of that a thousand times. Um, <laughs> if we're looking at, which is honestly why I wanted to have you on here, because I, I connect very well with your stuff. If we're looking at like, this injury and runners often need running. I have people who are not in a panic, not just because of their race, but because it is their way to like deal with the mental crap from their day. And if you need it, like, how do we, how do we find that balance if we're trying to come back from an injury? Mm. And I heard, I was like very short story to give you a second. Like one of the reasons I was, very drawn to you was a very long time ago. I heard you on a podcast say something like any doctor who tells you like, well, you just can't run for like six months and they just don't understand what that is. <laughs> it's just such an mm -hmm. unrealistic thing to tell someone that this is so important in their life. And we need to find a way to at least try 
to make this fit for some people. So like, yeah. how, how do you do that as a medical professional? Yeah, we do need to weigh up what is the psychological benefits if you were to be taken out of running. Th- those we just know in reality, it's not just relying on the physical mechanics. It's relying on the like the person as a whole and making sure that they're not um, their emotional state is considered as well. So, yes, when someone is injured, the first priority is okay. How much running can we currently do that doesn't exacerbate symptoms and you know aids the healing process? What dosage does that look like? How far? How fast? How often? If they can't run, if you try this small amount of running and symptoms still don't agree with you, we do have to take you out of running. But the attention switches to okay, what can we do to keep you active that's still going to keep you mentally in check? Can you can you hike and still be out in nature? And it'd still be challenging, but you just don't run. You just do this hiking. Maybe it's, you know, climbing up mountains and down. That's enough to not exacerbate your injury or just walking to getting fresh air. Um, But I do find some people who are rigid into running and this scenario presents themselves where we start saying, okay, you can't even tolerate any little dosage of running. What other cardiovascular options do you enjoy? And they have none. And they say, all I want to do is running. It's the only thing that's a stress relief. They have a really tough time with recovery because they're the ones that have usually ran through their injuries so often or aggravated their injuries so much that now they can't run because, you know, for stress relief, they want to run every single day. Yeah. They want to run quite far because they, they need to get that stress relief. And, you know, we sometimes it's not often, it's, it's quite rare, but in that scenario, it, it's tough. It's tough to try and find a, yeah. an option for them. And, you know, we can probably, we can try and be creative. I try and suggest a ton of things for them. And if they, if they don't like it, if it's not their stress relief, then they struggle. So I do say that runners should have at least one cardio alternative, um, at least like doing it once a week or something, just find something that you enjoy and do that. That Therefore, you diversify your way around for when an injury does happen because we said, we've said before, this is an overuse injury, like running related injuries are overuse injuries. And so if you can find an exercise component that varies up, still maintains fitness, still cardiovascular challenge, but just challenges you in different ways, offers variety in the load that your body is subjected to, it reduces your risk of injury. It's just as simple as that. And so, um, yeah, we do need to be careful. But like I said, if someone is injured, the first step is how much running can they do? So you, you probably still can run following within acceptable pain boundaries. But if you can't run, the next option is, okay, how active can we keep you? What options do we have for you to stay active, stay out in fresh air, whatever whatever that reason is behind you getting that mental release? Because it might not be the running. It might be the fresh air in nature that's really that you know stress relief might be just getting out of the house that is that stress relief. If we can still offer that in a, var- a variety of ways, then that recovery is going to be a bit more optimized. And the the recovery experience is going to be a little bit more helpful rather than just taking away everything you love and just trying to watch the clock for four weeks until your injury gets better. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, that's why I do other stuff. It's not 
the only reason I do other stuff is because I enjoy it, but I find a huge benefit to that when I'm injured that I do other stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we're up on an hour. Do you have a few more minutes or should we like to a close? Cool. Thank you. Appreciate you staying a little longer. I just have a couple audience questions. Um, So question from a couple females in my audience, like how any way to deal with like PT advice for pelvic floor things, especially prior um, or post-pregnancy for running? Mm. There are some guidelines out there and I can maybe share with you the paper. I haven't read it in quite some time. It's probably been over 12 months, but Tom Goom and a few other female researchers put together a paper on um, the guidelines to follow to return back to running. It's usually like post-pregnancy, it's usually about six months, but there's certain um, timeframes and certain strength benchmarks that you need to accomplish in those in that time um women's health physios are great at doing pelvic floor strengthening exercises or assessing the pelvic floor strength um because we do know that you need to develop a lot more strength post-pregnancy around the hips around that area we know that the ligaments get a little bit lax during pregnancy and then it's hard to to maintain that stability and strength or regain that um strength when it comes to post-pregnancy returning to running. Um, And so any guidelines, it would depend on the symptoms, depend on if someone does have low back pain or hip pain or incontinence issues or pelvic floor weakness and that sort of stuff. um, All of these were a subset. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Tailor that for them. But I, I can share some papers that have some really nice, clear advice about when and how to return back to running following pregnancy. That'd be really great. And I'll link those in the show notes for everybody. Thank you. And then another question was like, someone's just been struggling for a long time. And are they just kind of like doomed to be in pain forever? And <laughs> Like the big thing here was um, squatting and running pain below the knee. So like ACL area. Um, what are some, some good ways to deal with that? It's just this general sentiment of like, whenever I try to do the thing, it hurts is it always going to hurt? Yeah. It's, it's something that our minds naturally gravitate towards is, will I have this for a very long time? Do I have to give up on the things that I love? Especially when, you know, things go really well for a couple of weeks and then you have a flare up or things go really well for six months and then you have a flare up. It's like, am I destined yeah. to always have this? Trust me. I talk with runners, injured runners like daily and yeah. it's, it's just, it's just what we do. It's our natural default state to go to. And yeah. I will say that in most cases, we just make sure we identify any gaps in their rehab. And then we just, they feel a lot better. Like as soon as you have a plan in place and as soon as you have all those components that need to be ticked off, you you, you progress those in a sensible fashion. Most times, you know, that will I get this pain? Will I have this pain for the rest of my life? fades away you know it's it's just i see it so often i have been i see runners with some sort of running related injury and they've had it for five years sometimes more and that they're obviously in that same state and we implement a a right strategy and they just get better um i will say that flare-ups are expected though if because we're in the nature of 
pushing ourselves, pushing our capabilities, like we talked about before. If you had an injury that was persistent for six months and now you've overcome it, three years down the track, when another ultra marathon comes up and you're pushing your capabilities, <laughs> it might resurface just sure. because you're pushing those capabilities again. And it's likely that that particular injury that you've had for six months is your weakest point. It might be your calf Achilles. As soon as you start doing hills again uh, and it's too much, that is the type of injury that's most likely going to resurface. Sure. And so we do need to ask ourselves, was our rehab enough? Were we really like implementing the strength and power and endurance that the body needs in that particular site to then reduce the risk of injury? But then once you've returned to running or you've got another race, was that preparation gradual enough? And, you know, if that's the case, then it significantly reduces that risk of injury. But often people underdo their rehab and then they overdo their return or race preparation. And that's why these things resurface. For sure. And I mean, I've seen it, I've experienced it. If we're training really hard and we hit this huge peak week and something kind of flares up, it often just seems to like go away during a proper taper because Mm. you've stimulated so much and your body's just tired, man. (laughs) Like if we hit like a small thing, I'm not saying like stress fractures, but like my knee's a little tweaky. Well, you just had a 120 mile week. It makes some sense. Let's see how your taper goes. Hmm. And sometimes like the stronger you are, the bigger base you have, the more you're, the more efficient you are able to deal with those injuries, like the quicker you recover in a sense. And if you are at that real training peak, then you've built up a successful base of running. You're really strong, really capable. And when a niggle does happen, you're strong enough to negotiate it quickly. And it's a, a different scenario for someone who can only manage 10 miles a week in terms of their fitness and doesn't do any strength training. And then they've overloaded their sure. knee and now they have a sore knee. It's a, it's a different recovery path. And so, yeah, um, that would make sense. Yeah. hundred percent. So one final thing before we start to close out is, can we just close the, like my IT band hurts. So I need to roll it myth. Like I just, love sure. to, yeah. Talk. Yeah. Cause I don't like that one. It's really frustrating yeah. to me. It'd be nice to hear that from a PT or physio. Can do, can do. <clears throat> so um, your ITB is that really thick fascia that runs along the outside of your thigh. And from an anatomical standpoint, it isn't muscle. It's not a ligament. It is fascia. It, it's, um, it's this really thick, dense structure that doesn't have any contractile or relaxing properties. It can't do that. It acts as like a rigid um, support for your side. So when you stand on one leg, you don't collapse. It just holds everything in place. And so I got told at uni that um, we had a surgeon come in and he said, when they used to do ITB release, which they don't do anymore, they used to get a scalpel and assume the ITB was tight and they used to release it um, with, with a knife. And really, they don't do that anymore. Thankfully, yeah. I just they, didn't know they used to do that. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, but he used to say that the ITB itself, like, would blunten the scalpel. It's that thick and fibrous, and you know, does that's that's how strong it is. Sure. And so you're not 
going to do much if you foam roll it. Like you're you're essentially just squashing it and kind of just like rolling over it. You're not going to do any release work. Like physically speaking, you're not going to do anything. Um, we do know that you don't need to make it longer or make or lengthen it because we know that ITB pain isn't from a tight ITB. We know it's from mm. overload. And this is probably mm. a whole nother discussion. Sure. But there is some research, which I did include in my book as well. Um, mm. They did some research around stretching and foam rolling the ITB. And then they looked at the length and they looked at three groups, the, the group that did nothing, the group that did foam rolling, the group that did stretching and directly before and after there's no change in the length of the ITB. And so yep. um, there might be, one. like I said, there might be some similar to with stretching. If you notice that it settles down symptoms, like sometimes it could be extremely painful to foam roll and then that pain subsides and afterwards you feel a lot better. You're not lengthening the ITB, but you're maybe creating this really short term inhibition effect where you're settling down your, the, the sensitivity of the nerves and the pain signals because you're putting something unpleasant through your body and people stand up and they feel a lot better. By all means, continue to do that. As long as it doesn't aggravate the symptoms um, and it does have this pain inhibition effect, it might be really short term, like a couple of minutes or maybe a couple of hours at most that it has that effect, but you're most certainly not lengthening the ITB. You're, you're most certainly not contributing to long-term recovery or long-term like healing of the ITB that comes along with, um, you know, building up everything else and making sure your training loads are, are in place, um, proper load management. And yeah, so we can put that myth to bed. Strength balance as well, right? Like I often see some like some imbalance from like hamstring to quad a lot of the time seems to yep. show Glute that. strengthening. Glutes, et cetera. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Thank you. Um, well, thanks, man. I appreciate you hanging around so long. It's been fun and I could do this for another hour, but we'll call this a day. Um, I'm a few after chapters in your book. I'm loving it. It's been great. And great. I will ask like, why, why the story format? Cause I, I thought it'd be, I'd be honest, like I'm very overly honest sometimes. I thought it'd be a bit tedious, but I'm actually finding it super engaging. Like why, what made you go for, for like following Pete throughout this book? Um, I was contemplating taking it out. And like, when I had my very first rough draft, mm. I had about five of my podcast listeners read through it. And one person came back and said, you know, why have that, that Pete story <laughs> in there? Why, why do it? It's like distracting. Why don't you just have it like a, a medical piece? People want to learn about running. It's just a distraction. And I seriously contemplate like taking it all out. I'm like, Oh, maybe they're right. Let me just remove it. But the other four, well, three of the other four, like, I really love that story. It really sure. relates to me. I can really follow things along. And it, it initially started when I very first created the Run Smarter podcast. I did a little ebook and the first, yeah. I wrote an ebook and I wrote um, and created the first 10 episodes of my podcast tailored to the 10 first chapters of that ebook. And I put injury prone Pete in there and followed his journey just so people can, I don't know, I guess, relate to it a bit more or like tell yeah. it in a story. Cause I do know people sometimes learn from stories, but also sometimes you can rephrase one message five different ways and only one just resonates with someone. And they, they, you know, receive that message a lot better just cause it's been retold a, a slightly different way. And 
just knowing that I thought I'd give it a try. And people loved the the story. Like people loved injury prone Pete from the inception of the podcast and reading that ebook. And so I yeah. guess just from feedback, I just thought, you know, it's an idea to run with. Let me test with it with a small amount of people and then getting that feedback and hearing that feedback. I'm like, yep, let me keep it in and sort of keep that story going. And so um, I thought, yeah, it, it, it deserves its place in the book just because of the feedback I received. Yeah. I mean, fair. I have, I'm about halfway through. I have not read another running book as educational and as like engaging for that reason it's just different man like it's nice it's a nice thing to read it's really thank good. you yeah of course for sure and i'll definitely like link it in the show notes and please everybody listen to this buy it it's it's a good deal <laughs> and i would expect this is going to come out right about the time the audiobook releases so you'll have a few options but how is this different other than being longer right because the book is a tome and you you wrote a tome this is quite mm. a it's quite an effort uh how is it different from all of the like other massively helpful information you put online it's i guess a really nice i call it summary but like some of these topics mm. are so complex sure um you'd find i think if you listened to you know the 260 odd podcast episodes <laughs> my blogs my um, my other stuff that I'm doing, you'd probably gain everything that you could within this book, but it's hard to sort of summarize it into one chapter and get all of the guests that I've interviewed and put them into that same chapter and all my understandings, all the latest research and put that into one concept. So it was really hard for me to organize. It's really sure. hard for me to sort of um, put a certain study that I really love into a particular chapter that made sense and sort of like the flow of information um, because this is the f- first book I've ever did. Like when I first, started, I had no idea how to write a book and that's what I really struggled with. And Dude, it's a, it's a journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the, um, the subtitle is the evidence-based guidance. So it does have like a lot of evidence-based stuff, but also has expert opinions. So it's the evidence-based guidance and expert opinions to help you survive and thrive as a runner. And sometimes science can't show you everything sometimes it's you know if you 100 rely on just evidence-based practice you're only just limited because it, the evidence is only as good as the evidence itself there only there needs to be some well-designed robust studies on a particular topic for us to have confidence to yes. follow evidence-based guidance it's only as good as the the quality itself and sometimes there's not good quality on a particular topic so that's when we need to rely on expert opinions and so the 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 weight of the two, um, I think, is what makes the book stand out amongst others. It's not just opinions; it's also it's not just science. It's the 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 mixture between the two. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, I glad you wrote it. It's super helpful so far. I know there's another, you know, piece coming out at some point, and I'd love to hear you tell people like where else they can find you. I know you openly recently opened a YouTube channel and I I'm going to plug it in case you forget, you do a free injury assessment for people, which is the reason I was drawn to you in the first place. Like not everybody can afford coaching or this work, which is why I have a podcast is to help <laughs> people who can't afford it. So like the fact that you do that is amazing. So yeah. Where can people find you? 
Thanks, mate. Um, and we're on the same wavelength in terms of just delivering information, just give people the right information and see what they want to do with it. Um, the the first thing I, I guess people can check out, they can go to the Run Smarter podcast and listen to those first 10 episodes is usually enough to learn a lot about themselves and learn a, uh, enough about my particular philosophy and direction. And after that, they can have a look through the rest of the podcast episodes and see what titles um, best suit them. And if you like it, um, you can purchase the Run Smarter book. Like I said, it's like a really condensed version and um, laid out my whole entire philosophy, I guess. Um, yes, I am having a lot of fun and starting YouTube. So Run Smarter with Brody Sharp is that particular handle. And then if you are injured, have a listen to the, the podcast episodes and my content. And then if you're still struggling, then that's when people are, you know, compelled to jump on that tw free 20 minute injury chat. And that's usually, um, I can leave a link in your show notes, but it's usually in every show notes of my podcast episodes as well. Awesome. Thanks Brody. Anything else you want to say before we head out? I think that's everything, mate. Yeah. So um, I appreciate everyone for listening. Hopefully they've learned a few things and if they want to learn more. There's obviously those social media channels and everything else to explore. Cool. Well, thanks so much, man. I'm hit stop record here for one sec. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And go check out Brody's stuff. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.